In fact, while the consultant was on the phone telling me this, I was Googling to try to figure out who Mackenzie Scott was. And similarly, we were given several days to make a decision about whether we would accept the gift and in what form, if it was, if we wanted to receive it, we would accept it, all the funds at once over multiple years, et cetera. to say the nonprofit sector is broken. Less easy is saying how we're going to fix it. Welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors, where we speak with brilliant people to reimagine the future of social impact. In this fourth season, we'll be switching things up a bit and diving into what we all want, including and beyond donors. I'm Rachel Stephenson-Chef, IG's Managing Director, and we're a strategy consultancy specializing in social and environmental change. This podcast is part of our mission to fix the flow of resources for good. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel, IG's Managing Director and the host of the show. And I'm Emily, IG's CEO. And today we're diving into the philanthropy of Mackenzie Scott. We spoke to two different Mackenzie Scott grantees, Sage and Frida, the Young Feminist Fund, as well as Panorama Group, all about the experience of receiving her grants, as well as some macro sector trends Panorama is seeing as a result. A big thank you and shout out to our official season four sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, whose generosity and partnership makes this all possible. Also want to send a thank you to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. You can check out their website, alliancemagazine.org, and get 50% off a subscription with the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, at checkout. All right, on to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time today and welcome to What Donors Want. So before we dive into the meat of the conversation and Mackenzie Scott and your experience of those grants, we'd love to just start with a brief round of introductions for listeners who might not be familiar with you or your work. So can you please just introduce yourself, your role, your organization, the work that you do in kind of no more than three to four sentences, let's say. Hey, y'all. Happy to be here today and sharing the work we do at Frida, Frida, the Young Feminist Fund, I'm Clara. I'm the MAL manager that's for monitoring, evaluation, and learning at Frida. I'm a feminist impact learning practitioner activist from Argentina, currently living in New York City. Hi, it's great to see everybody here. My name is Michael Adams. I use he, him pronouns. I am the CEO at SAGE which is a U.S.-based organization based in New York City, more specifically. And we are the world's largest and oldest organization that focuses on improving the quality of life of LGBTQ plus older adults. Hi, I'm Gabrielle Fitzgerald. I'm the founder and CEO of Panorama, which is a platform for social change based in Seattle and glad to be here. Thank you so much. And it's so wonderful to have you all here with us on the podcast. So when we told our listeners that we were speaking with you all, we were flooded <laughs> with questions that they wanted to ask you all, um, which I really think speaks to the wider fanfare around Mackenzie Scott's giving size, her giving methodologies. It's a really big deal. And people really want a kind of behind the scenes view of what it's really like to be on the receiving end. So our first question which comes from Madison Sandy, is how did you get onto the radar of Mackenzie Scott, of the team that was working with Mackenzie Scott in the first place? And it's obviously a little bit about 
how you were identified, but also the vetting process as well? What was the experience of becoming a grantee like? It's a great question that I don't entirely know the answer to. (laughs) At Sage, we were part of the very first round of grant making that Mackenzie Scott did back in summer of 2020. And so at that point, her philanthropy and this extraordinary giving initiative that she's been on for a number of years was really hardly on anybody's radar screen. It certainly was not on our radar screen. And we were contacted by a consulting firm that we eventually learned was working with Mackenzie Scott and advised that they were working with an anonymous donor that had an interest in Sage's work and that they wanted to learn more about Sage's work. And we went through a couple of phone interviews and were asked to submit some documentation related to our financials and various other organizational bona fides. And then eventually, in not too much time, we're notified of this gift, which was far and away the largest gift we'd ever received. It was half of our organizational annual budget at the time. And in terms of how we get on the radar screen, we don't know exactly. We'd like to think and we hope it was a reflection of both the importance of our mission and the fact that our work had become increasingly visible in the years prior to the outreach from the consulting group, which was, um, in our case, was Bridgespan. And there had been increasing visibility to our work. That was a organized effort on our part. We launched a brand initiative back in 2017 that was really designed to reduce the invisibility of elders in our communities and to increase the visibility of our work. And perhaps that had something to do with it. But what we also know is that when that first round of of grants was eventually announced by Mackenzie Scott, it included a cohort of 10 grants to 10 different LGBTQ organizations. And so clearly she had made a decision that this was one of the areas in which she was going to focus her philanthropy. And we were fortunate enough to be chosen as one of those grantees. And I know we'll go a lot more into what that has been like, but I will say just at the top of our conversation, it's been a really fantastic experience for our organization and opportunity. Michael, for us, was quite similar. <laughs> we also was were con- approached by this consulting group, Bridgespan, right? On behalf of this anonymous donor, we ran like a lot of documents, they asked questions, and then they were told that it was up to the donor whether or not to contact us. So several months went by without any updates until one day the Frida co-executive director received a call to tell her that the anonymous donor was indeed Mackenzie Scott and the amount was $10 million, like in the same call, in a very straightforward way. And from there, we have really few days to decide if we accept or not the new partnership. So it's the same together with Frida. I think Mackenzie Scott approached several women's funds at the same time. I think Prospera, the international network of women's funds, play a role in that as well, as they basically recommend Frida. We didn't know we were part of their radar, and definitely Mackenzie's effort was we're still like, we were on the first round. So yeah, the same as Michael, we were very much gifted in that way. 
That's so interesting. She approached you or Bridge Ben, as you said, the consulting group approached you, which I wonder for listeners, I could imagine some people might find that frustrating because I think a lot of people are hoping that there was some, you know, proactivity on your part because they want to also like control for some of those variables. But it does seem like this kind of came out of not out of nowhere. Of course, there was a lot of work and credibility that you did. And and I think that's a really good piece of fundraising advice as well to to both of your points around, like Michael, you mentioned all the visibility work that you had done. Clara, you had Prospera, a trusted like network connector recommend you. So even although the efforts and energy that you spend doing other things around your credibility and visibility can then kind of create the conditions for luck to find you or for a McKenzie or a bridge span or a whomever to find you. I hope that's inspiring and not too disheartening, but also congratulations because that's in a really amazing, amazing way for a grant like that. You know, half of your turnover and $10 million, that's pretty fabulous. So I wanted to pick up, Clara, on what you were sharing around the fact that you only had a few days to accept the partnership or to understand if this was something you wanted to enter into. We were saying earlier on that when we wanted to do this episode on Mackenzie Scott grantees, we always said... Frida has to be part of this conversation. And it's because you released this incredible statement. It's called Money is Political, Returning the $10 Million that we owe to our communities. And it was this really, really beautiful statement. I'm just going to read a quote from it for listeners in case they haven't seen it, where you said... While we are humbled and excited to receive this donation, we acknowledge the source of Mackenzie Scott's wealth and its association with one of the most exploitative companies in the world. And it was this just really beautifully written kind of reframing of her philanthropy into a reparations model and how you wanted to use that towards in a values aligned way towards the impact that you have as Frida, the Young Feminist Fund. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through that a little bit from the inside of Frida. What internal considerations did you speak about in those few days when you had to make that decision? And do you have any advice for organizations who might be in the same position, either with Mackenzie Scott, you know, if they've also been identified and, and had this lucky opportunity or with other donors as well who have complications in their source of wealth? What advice would you give to them? Good to remember those days when we first received Mackenzie Scott funds, Frida was still setting up a resource mobilization ethic task force, which means that we didn't have that system in place for us to review any new partnership, in this case, Mackenzie Scott. We have it now, and I can then talk about a little bit about that. But at that time, the conversation was mainly internally among our staff and Frida Board of Directors. And from those discussions arise that if Frida accepts those discussions in a few days, if Frida accepts the partnership, it has to be accompanied by a statement which recognized where these funds came from. And just to make it clear, these funds come from a company like Amazon, which many of us has been part of movements to organize against or to call out the harmful ways in which that company operates. From tax avoidance, poor working conditions in factories across the globe, exploitation in their supply chain and profiting from mass surveillance, not to forget the catastrophic environmental impact. All those pieces are part also the evidence of our statement. So for us, it was really important to be clear that this is an opportunity. We don't have the privilege to say no. And it's basic because of the format of the get, because it was a gift that came without strings attached. So no donor saying, how do you need to use those funds in which ways? 
which purposes and which regions these reports are demanded from you. None of that exists since the beginning. So that completely changed the conversation and also allowed Frida internally also to consider this new partnership. So we did say to them that if we accept these funds, we would have to release a statement. And for them, it was something completely on our purview. So they didn't have anything to do with that. And for us, it was really great because we have the chance to make sure that our purpose is sound and clear, and we are returning the $10 million to the communities we owe it to. So for us, these communities are young feminist activists across the globe who are also facing a series of injustices, exploitation, environmental devastation, political crisis, economic crisis. And that's connected with a broader capitalist system Amazon has so much profit from. So that connection, when we said like money is political, it underlies on that idea of like we are returning the money to the communities we not more the only the communities that needed the most, but we owe that money to those communities. So yes, we developed a statement led by the amazing communication team. And it also has input from Frida, leadership and staff. And for us, it was important to acknowledge that we are taking those funds, recognizing where they came from, while, like that's part of the philanthropy field, while we pursue the objective of an ongoing conversation, a deeper conversation about the distribution of justice. I could then talk a little bit more about what came further, but for us, it was really that political act was one of the most important keynotes for us. It's so fascinating, Clara, listening to some of the background around the extraordinary statement that you all issued at that time. And I think in some ways, the context of the lack of preparation and surprise for this, it really kind of underlines that. And I'll confess something a bit embarrassing, which is that when I received the call in the summer of 2020 from the individual that advised me, us, that the donor was Mackenzie Scott. And in our case, it was a $7 million gift. I had never heard of Mackenzie Scott. I had no idea who Mackenzie Scott was. In fact, while the consultant was on the phone telling me this, I was Googling to try to figure out who Mackenzie Scott was. And similarly, we were given several days to make a decision about whether we would accept the gift and in what form, if it was, if we wanted to receive it, we would accept it, all the funds at once over multiple years, et cetera. And so it is a very unique circumstance to be offered a gift this large coming virtually out of nowhere and then having very little time to offer an initial response. I would say for us, Sage had no prior relationship with Amazon and has had no relationship with Amazon since then. But for us, what was really important was thinking about how this gift could further our equity vision about redistributing and reallocating power and resources. And we had a lot of conversation about, obviously, what to do with these funds and how to ensure that we utilize those funds in the service of redistribution and addressing inequitable allocation of resources, recognizing that we exist 
to serve a community of older adults who themselves personify actually the consequences of inequitable resource allocation, knowing that LGBTQ plus older adults are far more likely to age in poverty, far more likely to age without access to the healthcare and services that they need and deserve. And that within that context, there are so-called sub-communities of LGBTQ older adults, LGBTQ elders of color, trans and non-binary elders, older folks living in rural areas that have layered experiences with inequitable allocation of resources. And so for us, this presented itself as a wholly unexpected opportunity to utilize these resources in a way that would address that inequitable allocation of resources. And to Clara's point, the key to this whole thing was that there were absolutely no strings and that we could use the money in whatever way we wanted to. And that is, it's not only a unique situation or a relatively unique situation, but I think it also, it just presents so many opportunities from an equity agenda perspective. And in what you've both said there, you've spoken to really positive features of the grant, right? The size of it, the no strings attached, the longevity of it. And we had a question through from Joanna Howarth that was around, how has it actually affected you (laughs) as an organization? So there's the good intentions, there's the perceived opportunity when it arrived. In practice, how has it actually affected your organization? Obviously, there's going to be positive ways, but have there been any downsides to it as well? On behalf of Frida, well, we are a feminist fund. And Frida sees our role in philanthropy as a political act. So as you said that we are humbled and excited to receive this donation, we also intentionally want to foster this ongoing conversation about redistribution of justice and what that means. And we recognize that we don't have clear answers. There's a lot of complexities and nuances We all lived in a capitalist system. Frida operates in a capitalist system. We also recognize more deeper that we are part of a system. And to some extent, Frida is part also of the problem because Frida is part of a broader structure in philanthropy. So with that frame in our minds and in our practices, what I can say about the good is that we continue to make sure we have spaces to hold those discussions with other donors and in the philanthropy system that was very important for us in together with other women's fund we now have indeed a resource mobilization ethic task force based on our resource mobilization ethic policy which is available online but so that means that for any new fund any new partnership that we enter above a certain amount has to go through a committee which is compressed by grantee partners, staff, advisors, and board of directors. The purpose of that committee is to make sure that the partnership Frida enters is value aligned and does not put our work or the groups Frida supports at risk, whatever risk can be, like general security, reputational risk, or otherwise. So I believe like the resource mobilization ethic policy, the task force, and this actively act of encouraging the redistribution justice conversation are good and at the same time necessary practical effects of Mackenzie Scott gift. They are not comfortable conversations in the philanthropy field, but Frida considers it's a need 
that must be taken aside from the direct benefits of the donation, right? So for us also, it obliged, we were really on that way, on that path, but it obliged us to be more transparent, more committed to our feminist values and commitments, and definitely no strings attached. It's providing core flexible funding, like the format of the gift is much more values aligned with Frida. Mm. So yeah. Just a quick follow up on that. Has it affected others' perception of how much money you need? Has it affected your fundraising in any other areas? Internally, I could say it gave us the ability, the recognition that we really need co-funding for our grant-making model. We have a participatory grant-making model. This means that we have calls of applications all around the globe in seven languages. We operate in different languages. So that's a lot of resources that we are required to have a participatory model of grant making that and even open in all global south regions. And we need resources for that. So we also start, me personally, I don't know Frida, but start feeling shame to ask money like, Having this bold, this incredible model needs money <laughs> to be run on, right? We need money to make this. And also just not to give the money, but also to have what we have. It's a funding plus model that really tries to be close with grantee partner. But that cannot be if we have more than 300 grantee partners that are collective in different parts of the world that many times Frida is their very first grant and we have long-term grants and transition grants. If we want to make things good and have an impact, we definitely need the resources and the structure for that. So, yeah. Certainly for Sage and our work, I think the impact of the grant has been overwhelmingly positive. And one of the keys to what has made it overwhelmingly positive is that even though the gift did really come out of nowhere and we had very little time to actually decide whether to accept the gift, from that point on, we had no strings attached at all. We could take as much time as we wanted in terms of figuring out what to do with the funds. And it was a little complicated inside the organization at first because it was so unprecedented that we did have numbers of stakeholders coming in with all kinds of ideas of how we should spend the money. We recognized that we had to slow down, that if we were going to utilize the funding in a way that had maximum impact, that maximized equity, that we were going to need to take our time to figure it out. It was about eight months from when we were notified of the grant in in July to the following March when we reached a final decision about how we were going to allocate the grant. And having that time and not having a funder, you know, breathing down our neck, wanting X deliverables and X period of time really made all the difference. And so I would say it definitely it's been overwhelmingly positive. Having said that, there certainly are challenges. And it's so interesting, Clara, when you're describing the the approaches that Frida has taken and the ways you've thought about reallocation of justice, redistribution of justice, allocation of these resources. For us, one of the things that was complicated as an organization is that we had no prior experience 
in grant making or no meaningful prior experience in grant making. And we did feel that we wanted to figure out a way to redistribute some of these resources. And especially as a white-led organization, that was a really important part of our commitment. And we ultimately set up something called an equity innovation lab in which we're providing micro-grants and technical assistance to community-led queer elder projects from communities of color, from transgender and gender non-binary communities, from rural communities. But that was a huge lift for us as an organization because we had no prior experience doing that. And I feel really good about what we ultimately got to. It was quite a bit of work. And of course, another challenge is sustainability. How do we sustain this impact? And We have tried to be as intentional as possible in thinking about that. But even now in the Equity Innovation Lab and the the grantees we're working with and supporting, trying to think about how we do everything we can to contribute to their self-driven success as opposed to creating or supporting or helping to fund a pathway that is not sustainable because even $7 million does not last forever. And so those are... I would say to your question about did it change other folks' perceptions of us as an organization, we did lose actually a couple of donors who shared that they basically felt that Sage no longer needed the money relative to other organizations that had not received Mackenzie Scott gifts. So we did have that experience, but I would say on balance, It has been helpful to our resource development work because it has allowed us to make investments in infrastructure for fundraising that we didn't have previously. And that has a return on investment that is a greater and I'm confident surpasses the loss of, you know, of the couple of funding relationships that we did lose. We didn't have that bad side on donors, but we definitely were more conscious about the conversations between other women's funds, like our conversations as a network, as part of our colleagues all around the globe was like, why these funds or these organizations received and not others, and how those funds directly make an inequality or creates new inequality between funds that are sisters (laughs) and fight for the same, like, approach we have like in the global south when a group of collectives in my case it would be latin america like you fund one collective and you suddenly see that from all those 20 years of activism then it starts to fragmentize because you inject resources only to one organization and it starts to split like you need to have a really clear intention and also considered the recipient's approach, no? So it's also humbled enough for us as Frida also to listen to other women's funds, what they have to say and how we can allow those conversations and at the same time, how we can even mitigate if there are like externalities or bad. Yeah. I should probably explain Panorama's role in this conversation. So we did not receive funding from Mackenzie Scott, but about three years ago, when we started seeing her publications on Medium, we realized that this was a very unique time for both philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. 
And so we started an initiative that we call Collaborative Learning for Impact Philanthropy to look at the impact of Mackenzie Scott gifts on nonprofits to track the impact it was having on the philanthropic sector. And most importantly, to document and share what we were learning so that other groups who are in the situation of Michael and Clara's weren't starting just from scratch, that they had a little bit of information to start with. And so over the course of the past two years, we've hosted peer learning communities, engaged with almost 200 leaders who have received grants from Mackenzie Scott. And we've learned a lot, and we've tried to share that in a set of publications on our website, which is panoramaglobal.org. But I want to build off a couple of things that we just heard. So what Michael said about $7 million sounds like a tremendous amount. Once you really start putting it to work, you realize how quickly money can be spent, especially when you're trying to distribute it equitably. So we really recommend that people go through a planning process like Michael and Sage did to really figure out what they can use the money for. And what I would say, having studied over 100 organizations, is I've heard a pretty common theme, which is people start by maybe topping up some salaries that haven't been increased in a very long time. They may build infrastructure, whether technology or fundraising infrastructure. And then there's generally room for sort of one big investment. So is it redistributing the grant making? So maybe that's either a deeper version of an existing program or maybe expanding it a little bit wider. Is it setting up an innovation fund, an endowment, a rainy day fund? But once organizations go through that process, they pretty quickly learn they can do kind of one big thing with that. And what we're hearing from groups that are starting to come out of the three-year terms is that they've lost some donors, they've gained some donors, but ultimately they're kind of back to where they started. And we're hearing a lot of appreciation for the Scott gifts, but frustration that her gifts haven't unlocked additional capital of the magnitude that she has given. And I said at the beginning that we studied the impact on both nonprofits and donors. Sadly, we're not seeing much of an impact on donors. We're seeing conversation about unrestricted funding, about the fact that no reporting is required, but we haven't actually seen any changes. We haven't seen other funders emulating the style of giving that Scott has. And frankly, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot of hopes three years ago that this is so easy. <laughs> it's not hard to find amazing organizations to give away your money to. Mm -hmm. And if you are having a hard time, she now has a website called Yield Giving that shows 1,600 organizations that have gone through the extensive vetting like Freedom and Sage went through. And these are organizations that are poised for impact. They're ready to do so much more. So we have learned so much. That's the, the tip of the iceberg of what we've learned. This podcast is made possible by Siegel Family Foundation. 
We are building an extensive network of extraordinary people, positively transforming lives and communities across Africa. Whether you are a dreamer, funder, leader, or visionary, our network can help you make the greatest impact. To learn more, visit www.seagullfamilyfoundation.org or contact us at info at seagullfamilyfoundation.org. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really fascinating. It kind of speaks to a broader point around the need for overall systems and cultures to change in philanthropy versus just like one figurehead of new practice. And obviously, yes, we've all had high hopes that her practice might start to ripple out and influence others. But I think everything you just spoke to really, really demonstrates that nothing will ever be solved by one person doing things radically well. It, that will always be kind of contained within the culture and economic systems, et cetera, that we're all working within. Whilst obviously that could sound a little bit disheartening, I think it's so useful to have strong data and strong evidence and, and experience of that because philosophically speaking some of these practices have actually just been quite hypothetical for a while they've just been things that everybody says that they want mm -hmm. and they're kind of asking for it but nobody's really championing or really embodying the most extreme versions of those positive practices and so I think having this beautiful example that doesn't come without its downsides or its challenges or that has this kind of analysis around it now. And I think it's so great that you've taken that approach, a panorama of kind of like, you know, capturing that moment and kind of evidencing it in a way that can be used for future practice as well. Mm -hmm. Also, how you spoke about how the trends and how people are spending that money. And that makes a lot of sense what you just said. I think that's many organizations' dreams. I'm wondering as well, I just wanted to pick up on something that you've all spoken about. Quite a a logistical point, but I think it's really worth saying explicitly for listeners around this no strings attached, no reporting. So that you get a call out of the blue from Bridgespan. We have this anonymous donor. It happens to be Mackenzie Scott. You're Googling on the phone. I love that to see who the hell Mackenzie Scott is. And you find out. And, you know, there's this setup moment and then there's the no strings attached. So are we correct to assume that once the gift has been made, there is no reporting. Do you ever speak to Bridgespan again? Does Mackenzie ever send you a note? Do you have a time frame? You mentioned these three-year terms. Like, is it truly no strings, or are there a few little thin strings? Threads? Are there are there any threads? What are the parameters? What's the threading parameters of these grants? At first, the only condition was to submit once a year an annual report for three years, mm -hmm. and of general activities Frida currently take, like not even how these funds were put it <laughs> in practice, then that condition was erased. So we don't give any kind of wow. report to Mackenzie Scott team. No. Wow. We do not. like, And it's interesting what Michael was saying also before, like, no strings attached grant also gives you aside from being so excited and at some point like the first moment it's like <gasps> surprise and freezing surprise it also allows time for deeper conversations in your mm. team for more creative conversations like they put a innovation lab that perhaps like it's putting creativity into practice <laughs> having those conversations how do we want to do things if we were like 
those kinds of activities? Like if you have a million dollars in your personal life, what would you do? So you pursue a dream. So in a way, I think unrestricted gifts, unrestricted donations allow that. From our side, it was entirely called flexible funded. So we put it, most of it on our random making model, but we also improved structures. We also improved general operations that always have in philanthropy. Like we are sometimes internally, we need to validate more the work we do and how we do it. But it gives us time for also complex conversations about racial equity, about conversations that perhaps need resources, external facilitation, and that needs to be paid mm. like somehow. So I think that internally was really good for freedom. It also puts a much more ambitious understanding of what Frida can do and what we as an organization can do and can accomplish. And somehow that ambition also was part of our conversations with other donors. Mackenzie Scott is a trendsetter. Great. Like how we can support you. I think there is a lot about what Gabrielle was saying about donors' educations, donors' pedagogy, that I would love to get into that conversation. I want to hear more the logistics about Michael, but I would love to get into the pedagogy of, of donors as well. Definitely. Yeah. Michael, what, what were your threads? I wanted to pick up on some of what Clara was talking about in terms of the creation of this space for creativity and innovation that we almost never have, and including in the context of equity work. My frustrations historically has been that many of our funders, in terms of their values, value equity, encourage us, require us to work from an equity framework, but they almost never provide the resources to do that work and to support that work. And I was just thinking when Clara was offering an example, one of the things that this funding allowed us to do was to finally invest the time and the resources to build a formal anti-racism framework for the organization. And this is work that we had wanted to do for years, but to do it well, it required consultant support, facilitation support, and it also required the staff who were participating having the space to actually not be worrying every day about where like the next dollar is going to come in to make sure mm -hmm. that their program can keep moving ahead. And so it really is I can't overstate how unique it is, at least in the space in which we operate. It is so uncommon to have mm -hmm. unrestricted funding. Having said that, I was thinking about what Gabrielle was sharing, and it's hard to kind of figure out causality sometimes. And so I can't say for sure that this is the influence of Mackenzie Scott's philanthropy. But we have noticed in the last several years a slight trend among some of our existing funders toward an increased openness to funding and supporting infrastructure. And this is something that historically has been a huge struggle with our funders, and they would only pay for program and would not pay for infrastructure, which is impossible. You can't do the kind of work that we do without infrastructure, right? And so we have seen actually some of our funders 
increase their openness to infrastructure. And I'd like to think that some of that is we've actually talked with our funders and said, look what we've been able to do with some of this Mackenzie Scott funding and what a difference it's making in the work, right? In the impact, in the growth of equity. And similarly, in the case of one or two funders, we've seen them be more open to unrestricted giving. So again, whether this is about what Mackenzie Scott has been doing or whether it's something different, I don't know. But there is a little bit of some light opening up around infrastructure and unrestricted in our experience. I thought about what Gabrielle was mentioning. So, so interesting. That's perhaps my impact evaluation bias that I love so much data and having evidence for things. But aside from Mackenzie Scott being like a trendsetter, I want to add that the underlying belief of unconditional funding come from committed donors. It's that the movements, the activists, in our case, young feminist organizers, defenders, that are on the ground in the front line of actions are the real knowledge holders. And I will repeat that, are the real knowledge holders. They mm -hmm. know their context and its nuances. They know best what they need. They even know the resources they need for different kinds of practices and what are the pathways to achieve a major impact. So from a collective and systemic approach, I would say that sometimes It's difficult for donors and foundations to make read of the habits of control, as simple mm -hmm. as that, and the expectation of deciding over others. For me, that's the most important invitation Mackenzie Scott has allowed us as an example. Mm -hmm. You can create amazing things by getting rid of the expectations in any part of the world, deciding what's the TPIs, impacts, like indicators of that change that you think you understand better than the people on the ground. That word control that you just said, I think, is such an interesting one in philanthropy because you're absolutely right. It is this no threads, it even sounds like. You know, I was exact, honestly, I was expecting to hear a few more threads mm -hmm. than you shared. So that's really fascinating. And I think that it's also really easy in philanthropy, at least in conversations I've heard or at conferences to talk about how donors need to give up more control and we need to shift power through our philanthropy. And that is true. And we champion that. But I think it's interesting to bring that back into a interpersonal psychological space where most of us are not very good at giving up control in most of the contexts that we work in. It's not just donors. It's just that they have this particular responsibility to get it right because they hold so much power in the capitalist system that we live in and we work in. And so there is, if you have access to resources, Your relationship to control and power is really, really, really important to interrogate and get right. But it's certainly something I think we can all relate to or whatever context it is. It's I think it's a very, very human concept that makes it very complicated and interesting. It's also cool to hear that it sounds, to your point, Gabrielle, around on the macro level, like Mackenzie Scott is still this exception, not a rule. And... It also sounds like what you've just shared, and, and Michael, you mentioned this as well, that there have been a f maybe a few more donors in your realm, giving in maybe not to the same extent or the same scale or the exact same style, but this kind of unrestricted movement in philanthropy, which is kind of cool. Would you say, maybe this is a good moment to kind of wrap up in, 
thinking about this influencing piece, because now it's been several years now, you said 2020, you were one of the first cohorts to get her grants. So we're not too far out from the beginning of this journey. And there's a hopefully a big runway ahead of us. So I'm wondering for the three of you, where do you hope this will go on a macro level, not just for your organizations, but for the funding system? How might we all participate in this moment to influence other donors? Is that possible? How might we do that? What are you seeing from Panorama and your insights, you know, on an organizational level, Frida and Sage? I'm just wondering if we can, would love to hear your thoughts about where you want this to go and where you might see it going. One of the big takeaways from all of this work is a better understanding around this myth of absorptive capacity. We haven't run into one organization who said, gosh, we didn't know what to do with the money. We couldn't figure out a good (laughs) way to put the money to use. In both the examples on this podcast, we've heard of using the money to empower communities and get it to the folks most in need. So if there's one takeaway, I hope that phrase just gets struck from the, the language of philanthropy. There's a number of other things that we've learned through this work One is really trying to also break the overhead myth and getting away from judging organizations for investing in their staffs, their systems. I hope that's a change that we can look for. Another area that we haven't had time to talk about today is looking at the flow of philanthropic dollars, which in the U.S., Many dollars are flowing into donor-advised funds, and they're not leaving the donor-advised funds. And so in recent years, we've had a four-to-one ratio of money going to donor-advised funds versus nonprofits. And so we're really excited to think about if some of that money could start to flow into great organizations like these, like others that Mackenzie Scott has given to and then the literally thousands of other organizations that are doing amazing work that have not received a gift from Mackenzie Scott, how much better off we would be globally if some of that money would start flowing to people who could really put it to work. I would say the thing that pops my mind, it's the need in the philanthropy field for core flexible funding. This is something we have been advocated, but in those words, and that doesn't mean that we are doing like conservative, like just throwing money and giving money. That's a really misunderstanding of what core flexible funding, because even you can do gifts with no strings attached and you can share the governance. You can open the conversation. You can there are there are examples of putting in the table grantee partners and donors, like a pool of different donors, and engage into what do we want to do with those resources and how we but it's a different way of doing things. And sometimes we are so caught up with business as usual, even in the philanthropy field. And the other thing that I would like as a takeaway is like to to invite us, the audience, to engage into this ongoing reflection of the distribution of justice. And for us, means to reflect and interrogate what's our role in this system that it's harmful for ourselves from the grantee partners we support, but also how we can 
inside the system, we can change it, we can mitigate, we can name the problem and its nuances. That's not something we could sometimes imagine in the feminist and LGBTQ plus uh, <laughs> field and also visit some lights and create space for transformation. You know, as amazing as Mackenzie Scott's philanthropy has been in terms of the way that she's done it, there still have been within her philanthropy gaps. And I actually think that that is one of the opportunities. When you asked earlier about have we had any contact with Bridgespan since getting the news of our gifts, my only contact with Bridgespan has been to reach out to them on several occasions and advocate for them to try to encourage Mackenzie Scott to address one of the notable gaps in her philanthropy, which is that apart from SAGE, until fairly recently, there had been no organization focused on equity and advocacy for older adults that had been funded. And we were funded because we're a queer organization. That has changed, fortunately. But I do think that being cognizant of the gaps in that philanthropy is important. I'm also hopeful, and and this is why I get so excited by the work of Gabrielle's organization and others that are doing this work, that, that as much of a spotlight as possible can be shown on not so much our organizations that have received this funding, but on the ways that we've been able to successfully use it for things like systems, infrastructure, et cetera, investing in our people in ways that philanthropy does not typically support. And it's my hope that the larger philanthropic world will see those success stories and that it might impact how they approach philanthropy in the future. And then one of the thought I had is that we were talking a little bit earlier about systems work in culture change work. And I think one of the realizations that we came to at SAGE in in that eight months, that unusual eight months we had to do this thinking is that as much as $7 million is an amazing gift, that's not enough money to change all the systems we want to change in the world and to do all the culture change that we want to do in the world. And we actually decided to focus some of that money on doing systems change and culture change within our own organization in ways that we actually hoped, among other things, would contribute to the long-term sustainability of the work that we were starting with Mackenzie Scott's fund. So just as a, you know, as one example, we made a decision to do some significant restructuring in our organization that further distributed leadership and decision-making power across a larger number of leaders, both because that's consistent with our equity values, but also because we believe that it will actually create additional engines of creativity and resource development that might contribute to the long-term sustainability of the work, right? So I think thinking about our own systems and our own culture as organizations and how we can use this unique support or any opportunity that's available to us to reform how we do our own work in ways that can advance our long-term equity agenda, I think is helpful. Brilliant. Thank you all so much. Those are very, very incredible visions for what this could turn into, about how to leverage this kind of moment and this kind of support into something bigger and hearing about how you've been able to have that infrastructure, that space for creativity, imagination, strategy, working on the the four walls that you can control, you know, your organization and then by extension, these bigger systems. That is just 
incredible. And I'm sure Mackenzie, if she ever listens to this, I'm not sure she will, but um, I'm sure, you know, I just, I can imagine how much that would mean to someone knowing that they were able to facilitate that. So we will now transition into the most important part of the podcast. It is kind of our wrap up, but just to say thank you so much. We do have a few kind of silly questions to throw at each of you. We do this in every episode. It's really to promote the idea that everyone working in philanthropy and social change, no matter what role you hold or what power you hold, we're all just people. And that's a really important concept to keep front of mind. So we do have these questions. We're going to kind of throw them at you speed round style. Okay, here we go. So first question is from Michael. What is your ultimate meal deal combination? I.e. so a main, a side and a drink. What would you order? Well, I'm a New Yorker, so I got to start <laughs> with, with pizza as the main. Yeah. <laughs> and once you've had the pizza, the side doesn't even matter. But I guess I'd say a <laughs> nice green salad to balance it off. And then depends on my mood, either a beer or a Diet Coke. Perfect. Next questions for Clara. What's your favorite season of the year? My favorite season is spring. Not so much because of the colors. Well, because of that and the nice weather, but it's a good reminder of the bless of blooming and sometimes mm-hmm. working in the social justice field, so much engaged into injustices. It's good to remind myself the beauty and the kindness of life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gabrielle, if you could have the ability to either speak to animals or instantly learn every human language, what would you choose? I have to say I'm a people person. I want the languages. Yep. And Michael, uh, if you could have any job in the world without worrying about qualification or experience, obviously besides leading Sage, what would it be? Oh my gosh, I'd love to be a folk rock singer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Yep. Clara, if you could wake up tomorrow and have any skill fully mastered, what would it be? Definitely, I know that. I would love to play guitar. Mm. I have so many times in my life tried and continuously failed. I would love it. I have an ukulele, a guitar for my partner, baby, but I really don't know how to start. I hear, I'm actually learning guitar at the moment, so I, I, I hear that. Maybe you could start a band with Michael, a folk rock band. <laughs> And Gabrielle, what is your favorite country or place to visit? Before I answer that, let me just say, definitely do not invite me to be in the band. You will (laughs) just for everyone's benefit. My favorite country to visit, I would have to say my daughter is in college in Switzerland right now. Mm -hmm. And so my favorite place to visit is visiting her. Oh, love that. And very last question for all of you, which I know just people who are listening to this are, I imagine many of them are hoping one day to get a Mackenzie Scott grant to be plucked from, you know, the universe, receive that magical unicorn call and say they're getting $10 million or $7 million with no no threads attached. So based on your experience, what you know, is there any advice that you would give to an organization, a nonprofit, a charity, a, whatever registration they are? who is hoping to get a Mackenzie Scott grant one day? Is there any words of wisdom, advice, tips, tricks that you would share as a final closing statement? I guess I would say, just based on our own experience as Sage, just keep doing the amazing work you're doing in the best way you can do it and try to make sure that the world knows about it. I think that that is the the path for most folks who receive these grants. 
disclose your values. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we are in philanthropy, so used to see the trends coming by all the time. So so go back always to your, in our case, our feminist really bold values, and that can guide us every single, any single decision, practice, thinking, yeah. I think their answers were perfect. So I'll just add that if you are in the position to get a grant, that's an unexpected windfall. The first thing you should do is take time to celebrate it and celebrate mm -hmm. that great work that you've been doing and slow down and enjoy it for a few minutes before you jump into the extensive planning that it's going to take to make sure you spend it wisely. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you. And and for listeners, thank you all so much for sharing that advice. And we will put the link to the Panorama's research to make sure that's accessible to people listening to the podcast, because I think there's so much useful insights that you shared here. And and yeah, enjoy the grant. Buy a guitar and a ukulele and start a band. <laughs> and maybe have like a, a one month long nap. <laughs> Sounds like a really important infrastructure. Exactly, exactly. Oh my gosh. Thank you all so much. Thank you for your time, your wisdom, being so transparent and open about your experiences. I know so many people are going to absolutely love this conversation. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in and hope you loved the conversation with Michael, Clara and Gabrielle. I especially loved their comments around the freedom that a grant like this gave them to imagine and dream about what they wanted for their organizations. And also the discussion about what we all want for the funding system. If you work in fundraising or if you are a grant maker, IG has a fellowship called the Fix the Flow Fellowship, where we provide that space and facilitation for you to dream how you would like the funding system to change and how you can work within it in alignment with your values and your ambitions for creating a better world. You know where to find us. If you want to find out more information about that fellowship, check out fixtheflow.org. We're onboarding new cohorts this coming January. So very excited about that, but it's a very ongoing thing. We're also on social media, mostly on LinkedIn. So be sure to follow IG Advisors there. Our website is impactandgrowth.com. And you can always shoot me an email personally if you have any questions or just want to have a chat. I'm rachel at ig-advisors.com. And finally, of course, another thank you and shout out to our official sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, for making this all possible, and to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. Don't forget the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word. You can use it for 50% off an Alliance subscription. All right. Thanks again for listening. See you soon. This podcast was produced by me, Rachel Stephenson Sheff and the team at Scrubcast. Shout out to Dave and Tim. Please rate, review, and subscribe if you can. It really helps us do what we do. Thanks so much.